0: Restoration, doctor,
1: Retention. Retention. The chance may differ, but the message is the same. More pay and better conditions for teachers, tube drivers, civil servants, and junior doctors.
0: As the Chancellor stood up in Parliament to present his spring budget in March, half a million people went on strike to demand better from their bosses. Teachers, junior doctors, tube drivers, civil servants, and more all walked out of work in the biggest day of strike action in over a decade. But, this government is cracking down on striking workers by passing new anti-union legislation and taking the nurses' union to court. We're really, really angry. We're angry that government took us to court. We're angry that our strike action, which we have democratically voted for, has been curtailed. Last option we've got is to strike. If they take that away from us, you know, what have we got? I'm ready to step up and strike again. And as long as I don't see that my patients are safe and taken care of properly, I won't give up. There is talks of general strikes. You know, if it keeps on going on like this, that's what's going to happen. So, as the strikes rumble on into another summer, how can workers keep up the momentum? Will new legislation make it harder to fight for better pay and working conditions? And should more of us be trying to unionise our workplaces? Welcome to the New Economics Podcast. This week we're asking should we all be troublemakers at work? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, stay with us. So, this week I'm really pleased to be joined by workplace organiser Lydia Hughes and researcher Jamie Woodcock. Together they've written a fantastic new book called Troublemaking, Why You Should Organise Your Workplace. Hi Lydia and Jamie.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having us on.
0: No worries. Thanks for being with us. I'm really excited uh, about this conversation because we obviously did a, uh, not obviously, you may not know. I assume everyone's a long-time listener. Um, We did an episode last year called um, Hot Strike Summer that was basically, uh, you know, reflecting on the strikes over the summer and it's really heart heartening actually to be able to do this episode about heartening, you know, in terms of the continued action, not heartening in terms of the re- the requirement for continued action. But I'm excited to kind of have a bit of a chat about where we've come and how we've got here and, and where things are at the moment. So We're going to start with the title of your book, Troublemaking, um, which is very interesting and provocative. So you're encouraging people to become troublemakers in their workplace and to really wear that label with pride. So Lydia, what does it mean to you to be a troublemaker at work and why is it important?
1: So for us, um, being a troublemaker means building power. It means having power in your workplace to either force your boss or your government to make changes that they don't want to do. Um, So for us, it means organizing at work, building leaders at work, being that person who steps up and is the first person to say something's not right. But it also means using that power that you've built in the workplace to make changes even beyond the workplace too. So for us, it means being a socialist that uses their power at work to make that broader change in society. And actually, we got the idea for troublemaker from a great um, rank and file trade unionist organizer called Willie Black, who's been organizing up in Scotland for 40 years. And he said to us, and this is what I quote from him, don't go through life looking at things that are bad and doing nothing about it. Have the courage to step up. It's important to be a troublemaker. And if you've got youth on your side, then you've got 40 years of struggle ahead. So really encompassing everything that we that we want to put forward in the book there.
0: I love that. So Jamie, why are people who fight for change in their workplace so often labelled as disruptive? And I guess, was the title of this book a purposeful disruption of that kind of discursive moniker?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, some people worry about the term troublemaker, right? Like, you know, I've been labelled as a troublemaker at at various jobs at points uh, of different places that I've worked. And I think what we're trying to do with it is say that being you know being labeled a troublemaker at work is not a bad thing you know that there are lots of reasons why we should be standing up you know we should be asking for more and I think you know one of the problems in lots of workplaces is people aren't used to organizing or people aren't used to being able to say you know I don't want to do this or I should be paid more for doing that and so it's yeah trying to reclaim that idea that it's you know it's worth causing a bit of trouble at work because nothing's going to change otherwise.
0: So it seems like more and more people are willing to, you know, to take on uh, the, the title to become troublemakers. Massive numbers of people have taken part in strike action over the past year. And it certainly feels like the strikes, new strikes are in the newspaper almost every day. Um, you know, in the last few weeks, we've had the nurses strike, which was cut short after a judge ruled it illegal. NHS workers voted to reject a low pay offer and rail workers and teachers announced more upcoming strike dates. So Jamie, coming to you, why are so many people striking right now? I know it's a big question, but, you know, in a nutshell.
2: One of the ways to look at this question is like, why haven't there been more strikes before this? So all those disputes you talked about, you know, people have faced year-on-year pay cuts pretty much since 2008. So for most working people in Britain, you know, most people who, you know, whether they're working in the public sector, working in the private sector, people's living standards have been declining year-on-year. And I think what we've seen in the last couple of months, you know, from the hot strike summer kind of onward, really, is unions catching up with exactly how bad things have got. And I think triggered by the cost of living crisis, that it's simply not been good enough for unions to say, oh, you know, we'll try and uh, and get a bit more here or we'll try and do a bit more there, is most employers are not prepared to negotiate. They're not offering anywhere near the kind of pay rises that people need and so we've seen this huge wave of strikes called by union leaderships because you know if they don't you know why would people keep being part of unions and so there's this kind of you know pressure for unions to call action in lots of ways and I think also this has now meant that strikes are in the news people are seeing strikes happening and I think lots of other people are looking at and going you know, if the nurses are going on strike, if the the tube workers or or teachers, that looks like a much more likely way of getting improvements at work than doing nothing or talking to, you know, asking nicely at work, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure if you want to add anything to that, Lydia.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting moment where we can see the current public perception of strikes changing. And we've, you know, obviously been on picket lines for many years and always had a slightly lukewarm reception from members of the public or often people not understanding what strikes are or why they're happening. Um, and you know, recently we were on a nurse's picket line and the public support was overwhelming. You know, patients, passers-by, all honking and, you um, giving food and really showing their appreciation. So I think we're at a really interesting moment. It's a very optimum moment for the book to come out. Um, but also, it's a really exciting launching off moment for the vast majority of workers in this country who aren't in a union, who aren't organized, to see this positive reception and to start doing it in their own workplaces too.
0: Okay. So, What do you think the value is of this level of strike action kind of all happening at the same time? Do you think that it opens up scope for more coordinated action because I'm not sure if I'm missing it, but I, I haven't massively seen that yet. I know that there are various laws in this country that make collective bargaining and you know the, the type of bargaining for the common good that we see in the US, for example, with this, you know, the Chicago Teachers Union and, and others that kind of really restricts the possibility of that. But I'm wondering if either of you could say a bit more about the opportunities that do exist around uh, this becoming a more joined up endeavor and maybe a little bit more also about those restrictive laws
2: yeah. So one of the the major challenges with a lot of these strikes is, you know, when Lydia says going down to the nurses' picket line, if you go and talk to the nurses about what they're on strike for, they have lots of things they want to talk about about the need to have more staffing levels in the NHS, to invest more, to you know think about you know how the NHS is being run, patients are being looked after, and of course they want to talk about pay as well, right? But it's one part of A bigger fight that people are having over these institutions that they're they're going on strike on. And the problem is in Britain to legally go on strike. So to have a strike where you're protected from being dismissed, you can only strike over very narrow issues. So around things like pay or, or terms and conditions. This also makes it quite hard for unions to officially coordinate because a lot of people are scared of being taken to court for engaging in solidarity strikes or sympathy strikes with other groups of workers. So we've seen some bits of coordination in the recent strike wave. There's been a couple of days where you know, unions have decided... Independently of each other to call action on the same day, but I think a lot of this fits in with a fear that if you coordinate a big strike across multiple sectors, or you really talk about what you're going on strike for, that you risk being taken to court, uh, either by the employers or or have the state intervene. And part of this is that you know, over the last twenty thirty years, trade union legislation has become increasingly restrictive in Britain. And you know the the most recent instance of this is trying to bring in minimum service levels uh, across bits of the public sector and transport that would effectively make Britain one of the strictest places for industrial action and really take away many workers' right to withdraw their labour as part of a campaign to change things. So I think people are fighting within this very restrictive framework. And when we look at a longer history of the labour movement, there have been times where people have had to operate outside of what's allowed. And I think you know, we're reaching a point today where you know many of these laws need to be pushed back on you know quite actively.
0: It certainly seems you know a thread throughout the podcast episodes that we do on various different topics that the way that the government is moving and the more and more restrictions that are coming in around human rights, civil rights, um, etc., are really potentially creating an opening for that joined up social movement action that I mentioned, you know, folks coming together across struggles, across difference, um, who are all kind of impacted in different ways by the manifestation of these new laws, um, which certainly seems like something that we should be aware of and and I guess seeing as the the exciting opportunity that it is in the midst of all the chaos and disruption. I do want to touch on the public perception because, you know, of course, this is an ongoing issue. We talked about it a lot in the last episode, and I'm not sure myself, because it does seem like there's been a real shift in public attitudes towards striking caused by, you know, the mass action over the last year. But where would you both say the public is at the moment um, on striking? Do you, do you think that there is still kind of, you know, the high levels of support that we saw last year? Or do you think people are starting to get fed up?
1: I really wish I could could say that I think everyone is in support. But I do think that the levels of the public perception, the support for striking workers is still high. And I think that comes from us being in a really interesting moment in terms of the cost of living crisis. People are seeing unprecedented levels, or perhaps in their lifetime of inflation, that is forcing this strike action. So I think the support is still high. I really do. But I think probably where the issue comes from that we have to face as a movement is, even though support could be high, Levels of understanding and knowledge about unions, about taking action is very low. As I mentioned, you know, we're only at, I think it's 25 percent of all workers are in a union. And in the private sector, that's even lower. And with such low levels of unionization, um, there's a lot of knowledge that's just not there, especially in younger generations. And even though this coverage is bringing more knowledge, I think also with those who haven't ever experienced it, the power of being in a union, the power of being on a picket line, and the power of demanding something from your boss, it's very easy to see this latest wave of strike action you know outside of that framework and with less excitement yeah I mean
0: as you say it's it, it would be really nice if we could just say yes everyone's behind this but it's some it, in some ways you know it kind of feels like ironically the news cycles kind of moved on a little bit from you know grabbing people in Pretamonge and being like aren't you really angry at the tube strikers which is Yeah, I guess that we're we're missing out um, on that, I guess, more of a kind of public discourse around it. And it is perhaps fading into the background to an extent, although it is, yeah, obviously still front of mind for a lot of people. In terms of just the piece that we were talking about previously around the government legislation, I was hoping we could maybe use that as a springboard for talking a bit more broadly about the history of strikes in the UK. Um, Jamie, I know that this is something that you've kind of worked on a lot and written about extensively. Is what we're seeing now different from what's come before, both in terms of the anti-government legislation, the public response and the action itself? Or would you say that this is kind of, you know, the the reanimation of a previous cycles of union action and suppression that we've seen in the past?
2: So I think what we're seeing at the moment, and you know, I'm always cautious to say that what we're seeing happen is completely new or just a continuation of, of what's happened in the past. But I think we've gone through a very, very long period of Low industrial struggle in Britain, um, you know maybe you know maybe almost forty years or so of quite low forms of industrial action and also low confidence of people to take action and I think you know the kinds of strikes that we 're seeing happen at the moment are mostly in the public sector. you know many of the workplaces the newer workplaces that have followed in this period of low industrial action have never been unionized, and so we see lots of people who you know, are not and have never been members of unions. And then on the other hand, we still have the capacity to have these quite large public sector strikes. Because, you know, if you work for a university, you are involved in collective bargaining with 152 universities. If you work in a school, if you're an NEU member, there are 450,000 teachers who are bargained over at the same time. So we have this kind of slightly contradictory thing that, we have very low levels of struggle, but we also have the possibility for very large strikes to take place. But many of those forms of industrial conflict that are happening happen very strictly within legal frameworks for taking action. And I think perhaps the biggest one here, and if you know if listeners haven't been on strike before, is really to to note how difficult it is to legally go on strike in Britain. So to to go on a strike where you can't be sacked for taking part in that action, is you have to go through a lengthy balloting process to notify the employers at various points. When you finally want to take strike, you have to give two weeks notice so the employer can reorganise work around what happens. And this is in quite sharp contrast to how the labour movement has operated for most of the time it's existed, where historically strikes would happen where people decided not to work and walked off the job. That's now a very, very difficult thing to do. And I think for me, what's exciting about this moment, and this, the labor movement is full of moments of this historically, that we're seeing a surge of action happen that has the potential to bring large numbers of people into the labor movement. And part of that is about rebuilding a kind of rank and file confidence. So the confidence of ordinary members to take industrial action you know, whether that's official or or unofficial. And I think we're beginning to see the possibilities for more exciting things in the labour movement.
0: I mean, it certainly seems that way. I wanted to talk about strikes as a specific tactic for people to win better pay and working conditions, which is, of course, what they're designed to do. So Lydia, you write in the book that people often think of strikes as a kind of last ditch option, but that's in fact wrong and not that not the kind of uh, most effective way to think about them. So what do you mean by that?
1: This comes from a real pet peeve that we have. If you go on the websites of any of the major unions, you'll find a lot of press releases that describe a strike that's going to happen. You know, what should be the pinnacle of the excitement of an organizing campaign? discuss it in terms of, you know, we've been forced to do this by the employers, this is total last resort action. And we feel the need to describe a strike as something that is our hands being forced, that we don't want to do it, but we have to. And it's this kind of attitude that is so prevalent in the union movement now that really does nothing to build our power. So one of the key principles we talk about in the book is action action as being the most important thing for how we win and how we win really big through some of our experience. So I started out organizing in United Voices of the World with Clean as a university and the success that we had there of you know forcing the employers not just to even give in to the demands, which was parity of conditions with in-house staff, but end the system of outsourcing altogether was organizing people on the very basis that strike action was necessary to win and that it wasn't going to be, you know, this sad uh, consequence of negotiations failing, but that if we wanted to win and we wanted to win soon, that strike action was absolutely necessary and that even was exciting, a really great thing to do. You know, we would have these amazing meetings. They would probably last about 15 minutes in the mornings between shifts. And they would always end with all the cleaners banging their fists on the table, shouting, strike, strike, strike. And through that, we can see that action, of course, is how we win, but also it builds our power. So being on the picket line, taking action, standing up against your boss builds unions. I think that's not controversial now, I hope. I feel like this wave of strike action has shown that. But also when we're organizing in unions or organizing as workers you know, and socialists, it's important that we win, of course, so we take action to win. But the process of how we get there is also incredibly important. So we need to be building leaders, we need to be building networks, and we need to change what we think is even possible. And when we're treating strikes as just this last ditch option, we're not doing that and we're not building our power. So that's what we mean in the book by you know strikes as one of the most important tactics but it also you know can be true for other kinds of industrial action that people can take i think the bottom line of the book that we're trying to get across is that action is so important and that a dormant and slow union movement does nothing to build itself
0: I really liked how you kind of talked about it as actually something that's you know really exciting and is about building collective power rather than this is a really sad last resort. Um I think that's a kind of really engaging way of envisioning it and I kind of wanted you was wondering if you could say a bit more about how you know essentially strikes are you know the tip of the iceberg when it comes to union work but do tend to get a lot of the attention and this idea of like actually strikes and collective organising as a way of building people up, you know, building both individual and collective power often seems to get lost. So in addition to what you've said, is there any more that you could offer on what kind of work has to happen under the surface before a strike can happen?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that we just see strikes in newspapers and um, on TV, but actually there's so much work that goes in behind that. And it might actually be that the biggest issue in a workplace isn't something that's pay or conditions often union organizing starts with something really small a good friend of ours talks about the organizing that he started and it all started over a broken microwave and you know union organizers could have come around the workplace a million times and said right pay we need to all strike for pay but actually the biggest issue in his workplace was this broken microwave and through taking on board this issue and talking to his other colleagues about it, this is what he managed to you know, galvanize union members with and encourage people to join. So really union organizing in a workplace is these small little issues, you know, is it um someone's not able to get the holiday that they want, or the microwave's broken, or the way that people sign in and work is just not working. And it's these through these ways that we build up power and we should constantly you know us troublemakers we should be doing this all the time trying to build that power and and tease out these little issues and then when it comes to something bigger when it comes to building a strike then we're ready because we've worked on these small issues we've built power through those Jamie,
0: did you want to add anything on that on the kind of underneath the iceberg question
2: one of the things that I always like to try and remember and think about when, when you look at things like these big strike waves is like there's always stuff happening at work. People always try to find ways to change their work in, in big and small ways every day, right? And I think sometimes we, you know, we don't want to only look at the tip of the iceberg and kind of celebrate that moment, but also that every day people go to work in Britain and they try and change it and they try and push back in, in one way or another. The question is how we link those things up.
0: Okay. So let's just take a step back from strike specifically to talk about unions and and unionizing in general. Um, So in recent years, you know, we've seen workers join unions in sectors, which some would describe as really difficult to organize, like delivery drivers working in the gig economy. And Lydia, I know you've worked closely on this. What would you say are some of the challenges people are facing when it comes to organizing in the modern workplace?
1: There are so many challenges, but also so many opportunities. And this is one thing that we really try and highlight in the book of tackling these common misconceptions about challenges at organizing at work. Um, I think it's often we're way too quick to say, oh, you know, there are obstacles, there are challenges, people can be organized, they can't be organized. And we really want to get rid of this label altogether, that people can't be organized because It's just simply not true um, in lots of ways. When we have meetings with, you know, loads of different groups of workers from different unions, one thing that we hear again and again is people think that they cannot organize or they're unorganizable. And this is a huge misconception, you know, and we try in the book to go through all those reasons why people think they might be unorganizable and debunk them with real life stories of people who might be in the same conditions and who have done it. So we first you know, launch off by talking about the concept of being too precarious to organize. It's something we've heard so much in the union movement over the last 10 or 20 years, you know, that outsource workers are too precarious to organize or migrant workers or low paid workers. But it's parroted as perhaps an excuse for why they shouldn't be organised. Um, but we come through in the book with these experiences of our own organising in IWGB and UVW, in sectors such as cleaning, and as you mentioned, delivery drivers, Uber drivers, to show that people have organised in the face of really difficult situations, and that actually they've done it incredibly effectively. And they're at the front line of the union movement at the moment, having some of the biggest wins. And another one that we really wanted to tackle, which was people who were not precarious enough to organize. Um, Something we hear so much from mostly white collar workers, where people say, oh, you know, really support unions. Unions are great, but not for me. You know, I don't need a union. I have a great job. I'm well paid. Everything seems fine. When actually, when you scratch Just beneath the surface, there's always a reason why people should unionize, you know, even just for the sake of holding power at work and protecting against any future changes. And I always say to those people, you know, look around your workplace. Could you honestly tell me that there's not a single person in your workplace who needs the collective power of a union to support them? You know, there's no one who needs a pay rise There's no one who has issues with maternity pay or paternity pay. No one who has a bullying boss. Like, I simply don't believe it. And it's about speaking to those people and saying, form a union and lend your power to someone else who needs it. Often people aren't thinking about the outsourced cleaners who clean their building and how they could really benefit from a union with these white collar workers as well. So the message of the book really is that no sector should ever be written off, especially when organising at work, you know, as a socialist, that we need power in all sectors, and that all sectors are important. And then we should really start where we work ourselves.
0: While the workplace may be changing, exactly as you say, that just means that we need to work more innovatively and creatively when we're thinking about building collective power and presents more opportunities to do so um, really effectively, which to me feels like a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so as the, the number of organised workers in some way, shape or form uh, grows and unions become more powerful institutions, Jamie, what do you think that this means for on the ground union organisers? Are there pitfalls that workers need to watch out for in particular?
2: I always kind of try and say this with a preface of, you know, I'm a union member myself. You know, I've been an elected official at various times. But there is a big challenge that happens as unions get bigger is they begin to form bureaucracies of people who are no longer in the workplace. You know, they might spend most of their time doing negotiations or doing something in the union office, and as institutions get bigger they need more and more people to run the organization and then for some people running the organization becomes the job right it no longer becomes you know winning a strike or supporting one campaign in one place or the other and in the book we talk about this challenge of bureaucratization in unions but not as a kind of we should stop it happening or you know we have to kind of avoid examples of bureaucracy but to understand them and see how they can help keep unions going in times where not so much is happening, or they can be a, a part of the kind of memory of, of previous struggles. But how at other times they can be actively frustrating to workers on the ground. And we talk in the book about a number of examples of this. I mean, I've been involved in UCU, the Lecturers' Union, for a long time, and at various points members have had to protest outside the union office, or you know, have rejected deals from from the union leadership you know, something that we're starting to see happen uh, a bit more in the kind of post hot strike summer as we kind of come into the much colder spring. And so, you know, we talk about this in terms of our focus should always be on what workers in actual workplaces are trying to do and thinking about how democracy is a key part of of union organizing so that we can try and shape our own struggles kind of from the workplace now inevitably these challenges of bureaucracy are much bigger in in bigger unions you know if you have a million members in a union and a huge staff that's going to make it really really different to a kind of smaller newer union of you know 5 to 10,000 people or something but it's always an issue we have to think about you know how are we ensuring that the organizing we're doing is in touch with people's actual concerns in the workplace
0: Mm, I mean, that's kind of, I guess, a good headline for what we've been talking about throughout is really making sure that this stuff stays relevant. And we have our fingers on the pulse because, I, I you know, in the work that I do in, in movement spaces, unions often get criticized for not doing that, you know, for really being kind of stuck in their ways and not taking into account the more recent and relevant concerns of its members. So I think that's a really important um, reminder. So, You both make the point in the book that union work isn't just about improving paying conditions. I know we've touched on the other differences already, but that it connects specifically to the wider economy and to people's participation in democracy. So I really wanted to make space to talk about that, if either of you would uh, be able to tell us more about what you mean.
1: So we talk in the book about, you know, we're trying to speak to people who not only want to make change at work, but also want to make change far beyond that as well for example you know the climate crisis we wrote this also at the peak of the black lives matter movement um and really considered these as examples from where us as workers could use our power in a union to make much broader change and to demonstrate this in the book we use the example of the bolivian water wars it's an amazing example you should definitely look it up if you don't know anything about it um but it's also incredibly relevant to today so they were fighting against the privatization of the water system in bolivia and using the power of of existing unions and lots of other groups as well and they really fought back against this privatization and ultimately won so we can choose this one example to show what is possible and even though maybe as a union movement right now we might not be that close to it you know as we talked about Earlier as well, we're very much stuck in terms of pay and conditions. But these examples can show what building power on this small scale in a workplace can become on a much larger scale. That when we build power in our workplaces, we can not only just demand a few things from our boss, but we can start using that power to demand things far greater too. Um, And one important thing to mention as well as we talk about solidarity movements, for example, like the amazing anti-apartheid movement in the UK for South Africa uh, and how active unions were in that and how they really stopped the movement of, of goods or the purchasing of goods from South Africa. And we've seen that a little bit with the kind of Palestinian solidarity movement as well. Jamie, did you want to come in on that?
2: I mean, I think Lydia's, yeah, summed it up really well. You know, for me, a lot of the politics of the book is about this idea that politics isn't something that you ask other people to do for you. You put a a tick in a box and then somebody goes off and does things for you. It's about the politics of the everyday experiences that most of us have to go through, which unfortunately for a lot of people is going to a job that you don't like to be treated badly and not paid enough. And it's posing those questions about economic democracy. So. ordinary people should have control over what they do and that starts from having control over our work but then as Lydia says can make these leaps into into much bigger political issues right about you know how our work affects the world around us or the kind of looming apocalypse of climate change and how we all want to do something about it but the people who have power are not prepared to right.
0: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) couldn't have said it better myself. I think that's, uh, yeah, certainly the case. And I think, you know, from a NEF perspective, it seems to me that what the the book does a really good job of is, you know, making readers understand and listeners to this podcast hopefully understand that all of these things that we're discussing are really questions about the economy in the broadest sense, you know, what do we want work to look like and to mean and what, how do we think about the relationship between work and power? And these are kind of some of the most yeah, crucial questions of our time. And it certainly seems that the everything that's happening at the moment around the strikes and uh, government response and public response and all of those things are really bringing some of those core questions to the fore in, in crucial ways. So just to wrap up, let's talk about the future, um, because, you know, the exciting uptake in strike action across the UK that we've been talking about feels like it could potentially be a, a transformative moment. So a question for both of you, you know, just to wrap up, what do you think the significance of this will be for workers going forward? And I guess what I'd really like to know is what, if anything, do you think will be won, in air quotes, in the material sense, and what will be the legacy of this for the movement?
2: That's a, a really great question. Um, and of course, you know, the, the risk always with these, things of making a prediction is by the time the podcast is out, you know, who knows where the current wave of of struggles will be at. I think one of the things to say is there's the potential for people to win huge material changes through these strike waves. There is plenty, you know, plenty, plenty of demands that people are making that are achievable um, and that people deserve. So proper pay rises in the public sector, you know, the beginnings of changes to how public sector's Things are being operated in various ways. But the key to whether or not that will happen is about whether this current strike wave is bringing in enough people who have the confidence to carry these strikes through. And I think even if we don't see in this current moment a kind of huge immediate successes, one of the things when we look historically at the strike waves or social movements is they're also transformative as a process. And so hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people have been through this strike wave and have had a glimpse of what collective action looks like. And I think, you know, we're currently in the process of live training of thousands of new reps, of new organisers, of new people coming into the labour movement. And it's those people who are going to rebuild the kind of movement we need either to win, you know, right now in this strike wave, which... Would be really great, so please, by the time the podcast is out, you know I hope we can celebrate that. but if not, to rebuild the kind of movement we need to collectively start start changing the world and you know what makes me hopeful is when you go to picket lines at the moment and you talk to people, the level of excitement, the level of confidence that some people are clearly building through these things gives you that sense that history hasn't ended, you know the strikes aren't over as a as a tactic. But people on picket lines are showing the the potential uh, of what the future could look like.
0: And Lydia, what do you reckon?
1: <laughs> I think you've just said it really well, Jamie. That was amazing. Um, but I think one of the really important things you've highlighted there, Jamie, is the importance of that rank and file organizing now happening on the ground. So, you know, the organizing of everyday members of the union, we've seen it with the nurses rejecting the pay offer from the government, you know, despite the RCN really pushing for nurses to accept that 5% pay offer you know, the average member declined it. They felt the confidence to decline it and to keep fighting for that. And I think, I hope that is the legacy from this big strike wave that, you know, we're not just going to be able to see organized um, bureaucracy of the union that are calling these strikes in, in in a very bold way, obviously, but that we see a more confident rank and file of unions that can force strike action and can keep demanding more and more Um, So that's what I really hope to see from this strike action. And I feel very positive. I think there's huge material gains to be made. And then also in terms of confidence as well.
0: Absolutely. And it does kind of make me think of what you were saying earlier, Lydia, around this actually being you know, the, the strikes, I don't want to go back to the iceberg. I'm going to use a different metaphor. I think maybe go if back we, to the
1: iceberg, I, right. <laughs> um, I
0: No, I mean, I think it, maybe it's more fitting to think of it as a kind of, you know, if the strikes are, you know, the above ground, you know, a flower or a plant or something nice like that. Um, and really what we're interested in is how do we nurture the root system? You know, how are we kind of thinking about all of the different elements that need to collaborate and work well together and that are kind of happening behind the the scenes to make the strikes that we're seeing possible to build the leaders to change the discourse so that the legacy from this exactly as you've both said is real lasting change both at the kind of individual institutional and societal level uh, there's so much more that we could say but sadly that's all we've got time for on this episode of the new economics podcast uh, lydia first of all thanks so much for joining me if people want to find out more about your work where can they go how can they track you down
1: Hmm, They can find me on the Notes from Below websites, the journal that Jamie and I run together, um, and as an editor of Red Pepper as well. I I occasionally tweet, but not willingly.
0: Lovely. I really, I was just thinking, I don't think there's been a single guest on this podcast who has directed people to their Twitter without a heavy disclaimer about how little they use it and how terrible their tweets are. I wonder if it says something about the um, the state of the left Um, and our ability to self-promote. Jamie... Same
2: questions. Are you good at Twitter? Same answers.
0: <laughs> I, I,
2: yeah, a bit more frequently, but yeah, not not willingly or, or, or happily. Yeah, I mean, this, same as what Lydia said, if people want to read more about uh, some of the strike waves and, uh, and these kinds of things, uh, notes from below. Um, I also have a website where you can read my academic work for free, which is jamiewoodcock.net because .com is taken by a photographer, which is not me. Um, But yeah, thanks so much for having us on.
1: No worries. And
0: just give us one one last reminder
1: of the book and where people can get it. So the book is Troublemaking, Why You Should Organise Your Workplace. And you can find it on the Verso website.
0: Lovely stuff. That is it for today's New Economics Podcast, but we'll be back soon with more. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter um we're not very good at it either (laughs) no i don't run it i'm just joking it's great uh the new economics podcast is brought to you by the new economics foundation produced by becky malone margaret welsh and Katrina gaffney i'm aisha thomas smith stay safe